It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. This podcast never slows down, but I do have the subtle feeling that the news has slowed down just a bit this week. We've got a lot to talk about, don't get me wrong. Uh, But you've got uh, Easter coming up, a lot of kids off for spring break this week, a lot of families are away, Uh, a lot of politicians are out of town, which means they're missing the cherry blossoms. Here in Washington, the weather's been a bit warmer, and I just think a lot of people are like, you know, after a year of the pandemic, let's take it easy for a few days. But we will not be taking it easy here. In fact, since it's Friday, that means we're crashing on Media Buzz. Hope you'll have a chance to check out the show Sunday morning, 11 Eastern on Fox News Channel. Uh, So much to cover here that I think I ought to dive in because some of these stories have a lot of complexity and even nuance to them. Beginning with story number one, Matt Gates. Well, we know a whole lot more than we did 24 hours ago about the Gates investigation. You know, remember this broke New York Times a few days ago, Republican congressman from Florida, big ally of uh, Donald Trump, uh, under DOJ investigation for possible alleged potential uh, sex trafficking of a 17-year-old girl. And the trafficking part comes in because apparently there are federal statutes against moving um, women across state lines, particularly minors, uh, for purposes of sex, uh, if you're paying them. Well, the New York Times, which broke the story, and then remember there was the whole um, counterattack by Gates about how he and his dad have been the target of an extortion plot. And it turns out there's something to that too. But it's a completely separate matter uh, that doesn't negate the fact that he remains under criminal investigation. So a whole lot more details now in the New York Times this morning about the Gates matter. And some of this is kind of tabloid, I will warn you, uh, a little bit uh, X-rated. But we'll soldier on here. Um, so the investigation into Matt Gates and another Florida politician who he's friendly with, who's already been indicted for sex trafficking, never a, a good look, um, involved, is focusing on, they're involved with multiple women who were recruited for sex online and received cash payments, according to people close to the investigation, and text messages and payment receipts reviewed by the paper. Uh, I have to stop here and tell you that as an old Justice Department reporter. Um, It is highly unusual, particularly when you're not exactly on the brink of an indictment to get this kind of detail about an ongoing criminal investigation. So I think what's happening is people familiar with the case are are leaking and cooperating uh, with the Times and perhaps others uh, to get this stuff out for reasons known only to them. And maybe some are pissed off that Gates went public with the what was a separate FBI probe of the extortion sting or alleged sting against him, $25 million to help free uh, American hostage in Iran, and maybe the charges against him would be dropped, except the people who were, who were running, who allegedly are accused of running this scam, which they deny, by the way, they don't have any power or influence to get the federal justice department to drop an investigation anyway more on this uh possible potential and alleged sex trafficking ring uh so the other guy gates his pal is joel greenberg former tax collector in seminole county florida he was indicted last year on federal sex trafficking charges and he's since been indicted for other things he's in prison now on a parole violation he hasn't been convicted of anything according to the times 
Greenberg introduced the women that he was messing around with to Matt Gates, who also had sex with him, the sources telling the New York Times. They met through websites that connect people who go on dates in exchange for gifts, fine dining, travel, and allowances. And there's a shorthand term for this. It's called sugar daddy. You know, you as the guy who wants to find women to sleep with, uh, you connect with them, and I'll have more on this in a moment, and you agree to pay them a lot of money. And then there's this sort of fine distinction where, as we'll get into, if you are, you know, if you're taking them out to find restaurants, if you're paying for their plane ticket, if you're paying for them a hotel, that can be okay. If you're paying them for sex, well, then you're engaging in a form of prostitution. But one can see where it might be difficult to unravel the distinctions here. So Gates is denying ever paying a woman for sex. We'll get to his statement in a moment. Justice Department also investigating whether he had sex with one of them, a 17-year-old girl, whether she received anything of material value. The sex trafficking account against Greenberg involves this same girl. In fact, the authorities are investigating whether other men connected to Gates, connected to Greenberg, had sex with this same 17-year-old girl. Now, what's the proof here? The Times has reviewed receipts from Cash App, a mobile payments app, and Apple Pay that show payments from Gates and Greenberg to one of the women and a payment from Greenberg to a second woman. The women told their friends, this is interesting, that the payments were for sex with the two men. So in other words, uh, they're saying that's not what the money is about. Then the women have at least told their friends, yeah, that is what the money's about. That's why we hung out with them. Now, these encounters took place in 2019 and last year. Gates and Greenberg told the women, again, this is according to the Times' sources, to meet at certain times and places, often at hotels around Florida, and would tell them the amount of money they were willing to pay. Some of the men and women took ecstasy, an illegal mood-altering drug, before having sex, including Matt Gates, according to two people familiar with the account. So now you have drugs involved, now you have payments involved. What the payments are for is obviously going to be crucial to whether there's a criminal case here. In some cases, this just keeps getting worse and worse, and more and more tawdry, I've got to say. Gates asked women to help find other women who might be interested in having sex with him and his friends. So now it's a whole ring, right? Wow. Um, More on this. And here's one of the key paragraphs. Um, Should anyone inquire about their relationships, one person said, Gates told the women to say he had paid for hotel rooms and dinners as part of their dates. Yeah, we're just dating, and uh, we'd like to uh, have nice dates and meet in nice hotels and have nice dinners, and they weren't paid for sex. Uh, Here is the statement in the third person on behalf of the congressman. Matt Gates has never paid for sex. Matt Gates refutes all the disgusting allegations completely. Matt Gates has never, uh, ever been on any such websites whatsoever. Matt Gates cherishes the relationships in his past and looks forward to marrying the love of his life. Now, does that mean just that he hopes there is a love of his life or this is a particular woman who now hopes to marry? I don't know. Uh, look, it's possible that Gates himself didn't go on the websites that the other guy did or some other person did. I didn't even know about these websites, but uh, as the Times says, it's not illegal to provide adults, and that's key, you got to be over 18, with free hotel stay, stays, meals, and gifts. But if prosecutors think they can prove the payments to the women were for sex, 
they could accuse Gates of trafficking the women under, quote, force, fraud, or coercion. For example, prosecutors have filed trafficking charges against people suspected of providing drugs in exchange for sex because feeding another person's drug habit could be seen as a form of coercion. Now, um, one of the sites the men met women through was called Seeking Arrangement, which described itself as a place where wealthy people find attractive companions and pamper them with fine dinners, exotic trips, and allowances. The site's founder says it has 20 million members around the world. So uh, clearly, this is a thing. You're a wealthy guy. You might want to meet women. You go on this site, and basically you're saying, I'll be the sugar daddy. I'll pay for your trips. I'll pay for your dinners. I'll even give you an allowance. It's an interesting term. And if you really, really like me, maybe you want to sleep with me. The FBI mentioned the website in a conversation with at least one potential witness, according to a source. So there's a lot more to understand here. There's also the alleged claims of extortion, which it now looks increasingly may have happened or something that at least could be interpreted as extorting Congressman Matt Gates and his dad as a former Florida state senator. Boy, Florida has got the best scandals, doesn't it? you got to say. you got to admit that. Um, but they may be completely unconnected to this Justice Department investigation, which has been going on for months, started at the end of the Trump administration. So you can't say this is something that was cooked up by the Democrats. And, you know, Gates is issuing a lot of denials here, but he does cherish his past relationships. And now we find out that there may well have been payments, that Gates is probably going to claim that this has had nothing to do with sex, that he was just, you know, being generous. He's used that word in past statements to his girlfriends at the time. But if there was a case here, it will revolve around um, trafficking, moving women across state lines, what these women may have told friends about, whether they in fact were being paid for sex, and the taking of ecstasy. So watch that space, right? Story number two, Hunter Biden and his new book. So Hunter Biden uh, has got this book out called Beautiful Things, uh, and it is mostly about a, a very raw and emotional book designed to create sympathy for the president's son, obviously. That's about his addictions, his addictions to crack cocaine. Uh, he writes in this book at one point he was smoking crack every 15 minutes, his addiction to alcohol. Uh, he admits to being an alcoholic. Uh, and um, how the now president dealt with that. But he also has to deal with, you know, his influence peddling, his, his dealings with Burisma in Ukraine, uh, his dealings with China. So in order to publicize this book, he's given a couple of interviews to CBS. CBS and Simon & Schuster, which is publishing the book, are owned by the same company. There's been a couple of advanced clips put out by CBS Sunday Morning that will obviously air this weekend. So in this CBS Sunday Morning interview, the reporter asked Hunter repeatedly, what about this laptop? Was this your laptop? What about this laptop? And Hunter Biden starts out by saying, well, I don't know. For real, I don't know. Well, yes or no, was it? Uh, I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. Finally, after being asked this about, I don't know, eight or ten times, Hunter Biden says, certainly there could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. It could be that I was hacked. It could be that it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me. Well, I mean, didn't Hunter Biden, the guy who run the shop, said Hunter Biden brought in a couple of laptops for repair. So it didn't necessarily have to be stolen. Now, in a separate interview, this is Anthony Mason, I think this is for 60 Minutes, um, Hunter Biden 
describes, and this is in the book, what happened at his dad's home in Wilmington in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election. There was a tenants confrontation. Hunter Biden stormed out of the house, only to be chased down in the driveway by now President Biden. Hunter Biden. Uh, yeah, um, I tried to get in my car, and my girls literally blocked the door to my car. Said, Dad, Dad, please, you can't. No, no. This was the hardest part of the book to write, and he grabbed me in a hug, Joe Biden did. He grabbed me, gave me a bear hug, and he said, and just cried, and said, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Please. What did you think when you heard that? I thought, I need to figure out a way to tell him I'm going to do something so that I can go take another hit. It's the only thing I could think, literally. That's how powerful. I don't know of a force more powerful than my family's love except addiction. Now, Hunter Biden obviously had a very, 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 very serious crack problem and addiction problem. And the book obviously is designed to come clean about that. And it also is designed to show that he's a human being and that other people who you might be more sympathetic to than Joe Biden's son, you know, also have struggled with this kind of addiction. Meanwhile, NPR has issued a correction yesterday. Long after, NPR kind of pissed all over this story, the original New York Post story about the Hunter Biden laptop. And NPR had reported quite a while ago that the Hunter Biden laptop was, quote, discredited by U.S. intelligence and independent investigations by news organizations. Well, now NPR has a correction. A previous version of the story said U.S. intelligence had discredited the laptop story. U.S. intelligence officials have not made a statement to that effect, the NPR correction says. Uh, what took so long? And now, I mean, even though Hunter Biden is not saying it's my laptop, he's saying, well, it could be my laptop. You know, the news organizations that tried to say this was discredited, this was all made up by Russian intelligence, all look really bad. There's just no other question about it. I don't understand, frankly, why Hunter Biden isn't saying, yeah, it was my laptop. Because whose laptop could it have been that, that, that contained all of these emails, some of which were confirmed by other people that had to do with Hunter's uh, mostly potential business dealings? Whose laptop could it have been? It's, it was taken from a Delaware repair shop. Uh, how would somebody else... I mean, I, even the idea the laptop was stolen, but how would somebody else have had all these Hunter Biden emails, all these Hunter Biden videos? It just kind of strains credulity. Uh, so Hunter Biden knew when he wrote this book that he was paid a reported $2 million for, and that may also have been a major part of his motivation in publishing this thing, uh, that he'd be asked these questions. He obviously is giving very narrow answers to questions about influence peddling and uh, what qualified him uh, to do uh, that kind of business in, in Ukraine uh, on, on energy, a subject in which he has no expertise. And it's raised all this again, and I think it's a political headache, political headache for President Biden. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's get to number three. Um, some good news on the jobs front. Employers, you know, the monthly job figures are out. Employers added 916,000 jobs in March. That's up from 416,000 in February. The unemployment rate ticking down to 6% from 6.2%. Look, when you got a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, when you're sending people $1,400 stimulus checks, when you're giving special unemployment aid to people who have been out of work for a long time, when you're uh, giving aid to small businesses, you're going to help the economy. 
So it's a good thing that unemployment is down, and I hope that's a continuation of a trend. Meanwhile, the $2 trillion uh, Biden infrastructure plan, and news organizations are continuing to um, write stories about how great this is, or at least to tell us all the wonderful things that are in it. So here's a pair of stories from the Washington Post. President Biden's jobs plan proposes a massive investment in home care for the elderly and people with disabilities. Now, as I've said before, like a lot of the things in this bill may be great, just like a lot of the things in the COVID economic aid package may have been great. But what did some of those have to do with COVID? And what do some of these have to do with infrastructure? No, it's become another Christmas tree. And this is why a lot of people, Republicans especially, and I'll get to that in a second, are saying, well, um, you know, how can you be against this? But, but it's just, it's just new, other ornaments liberal wish list tacked on that I think makes it more difficult to pass, especially a massive bill, $2 trillion plus. And, um, you know, it it makes it vulnerable to criticism that this is just another vehicle. It's called infrastructure. And certainly there's a lot of money in here for roads and for bridges and for airports and for mass transit and for Amtrak. I'll get to that in a second. But this America Jobs Plan uh, has about $400 billion, and this is over eight years, so the numbers sound large, but still, this is committing uh, Congress to spend, the federal government to spend $400 billion over eight years on home or community-based care for the elderly and people with disabilities. Now, personally, as an alternative to being in nursing homes, I think that's a good thing, but you probably can't pass a $400 billion uh, measure on its own So you tuck it into the American Jobs Plan, the American Infrastructure Plan. That's how these things work. Here's a second Washington Post story. President Biden's infrastructure plan calls for an unprecedented boost in federal aid aid to the nation's passenger rail system, seeking to address Amtrak's repair backlog, extend service to more cities. And that's key. If you're in a city that doesn't have many Amtrak trains and now you're going to have expanded service, that makes it easier for your member of Congress to vote for it. And $80 billion for rail, money that could be crucial in taking passenger service to cities such as Las Vegas and Nashville. And expand operations across such metro areas as Atlanta and Houston. So immediately you got Nevada, Tennessee, Georgia, and Texas, where there's going to be an argument, hey, we're bringing home the bacon for folks back home. The CEO of Amtrak says that's what this nation has been waiting for. Uh, Intercity rail would get a 400% boost in funding. According to some estimates, a transformational investment, says the Post, that could be, bring major rail expansions and millions more riders. Okay, if you like mass transit, if you like rail as an alternative to more cars on the highways, then this is a great thing. But again, when you add up all of these things, you give Mitch McConnell came out saying there's no way Republicans are going to support this bill, which means that if Biden and the Democrats have to want to pass this, they're going to have to do what they did with the COVID bill. They're going to have to run what's called reconciliation, which means you pass it with only Democratic votes. Now, Biden says he's going to, he's open to alternatives, different ways of funding, not just raising taxes on corporations and uh, people making over $400,000. Uh, but again, it looks like the two sides are so far apart that it'll have to pass, if it does pass, with only Democratic votes. Now, here's a piece by National Review editor Rich Lowry, who talks about Biden spending all this money. Joe, though Joe Biden, who portrayed himself as a moderate, old-school, bipartisan dealmaker during the campaign, 
now a distant memory. Lowry says he's been replaced by the Joe Biden who is dazzling progressives with his willingness to go big. I talked about that phrase the other day. In other words, spend jaw-dropping amounts that would have been unimaginable prior to the pandemic and are still shocking even now. Democrats have talked themselves into the proposition that there basically isn't such any such thing as spending too much money. And this is what worries me as somebody who's old-fashioned enough to care about the deficit, to care about the debt. Now the Democratic Party consensus is Barack Obama went too small with a stimulus package that was under a trillion dollars. Can you imagine that? Under a trillion after the Great uh, Recession uh, of uh, 2008 and early 2009. Besides, this piece says, Spending is what Biden can actually do. He can pass his stimulus and relief bills under so-called reconciliation rules in the Senate, requiring only 50 votes rather than the 60 it would take to break a filibuster. In other words, Biden may not be able to accomplish a whole lot of things, but if it's related to the budget, he can possibly get this through. Any Democratic president is drawn to the heroic allure FDR and wants to measure himself against the New Deal. And Lowry says, look, there's a lot of money sloshing around out there. The schools, the schools have tens of millions of dollars sitting around unspent from prior relief bills. Here comes another $100 billion to upgrade school buildings in the infrastructure bill. The schools were lavish with $350 billion in the COVID-19 bill. Even though many of them didn't lose revenue during the pandemic, why can't those dollars be spent on infrastructure? This proposal is an infrastructure, drinking water, broadband, home retrofitting, manufacturing, long-term care, electric car, unionization bill, and a few other things beside. But after all this money is spent, if it passes, will it really transform the country or will it be like the Obama stimulus, which is completely forgettable? Well, I mean, look, you spend that much money, you are going to create lots of jobs, transform the economy to some extent. And look, the things like helping Amtrak and home care, I mean, on their own, they're arguably very good things for government to do. But the question is, how much can government do? How much can government spend on all this till we are just basically printing money? All right, number four, the George Floyd murder trial continues. And what's interesting to me is um, that the police officer on trial in Minneapolis, Derek Chauvin, uh, a former supervisor testified yesterday, a sergeant who was his boss, that he should not have knelt on George Floyd's neck after he stopped resisting. And that, I think, is just a key bit of testimony. By the way, uh, Chauvin didn't immediately tell the supervisor that he had knelt on Floyd's neck while restraining him during this police stop. He waited more than half an hour until he stood outside the hospital emergency room where George Floyd remained unresponsive to disclose the information. So the the supervisor, his name is David Ploger, he testified that uh, he called Chauvin after getting a call from a concerned 9-11 dispatcher who was watching this on a city security camera, saw police holding Floyd on the ground. She called to say she didn't mean to be a snitch, but she'd seen something while viewing the camera that she thought was concerning, the retired sergeant testified. Asked his opinion, he told prosecutors on the questioning, when Mr. Floyd was no longer offering up any resistance to the officers, they could have ended the restraint. Well, of course they could have and should have ended the restraint. He was down on the ground. He was a threat to nobody at the time. Now, National Review has a piece saying, look, George Floyd, we now know, forcibly resisted arrest. He did not verbally threaten the arresting officers, but he used significant force against them to try to prevent being taken into custody. Uh, That was the upshot of other testimony uh, on Wednesday. 
the audio recording is unclear. Floyd, at six foot four inches and 223 pounds, was so determined not to be placed in the back of a squad car, even though he was handcuffed, that four grown men, police officers trained in the use of force, could not get him to take a seated position. Now, even National Review adds, this does not mean the officer's prolonged restraint of Floyd later on as his life faded was justified. That is the central issue the jury will have to resolve. So that's true. You know, both things can be true. He may have been resisting arrest. He was a big guy. The the officers may have been worried about that. But once he was down on the ground, surrounded by five officers with Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck, as he said 23 times, I can't breathe, during a 9 minute and 20 nine-second stretch, at that point, he is not a threat to anybody. Clearly, as a legal matter, I don't know. It's up to the jury. As a matter of police tactics, uh, this looked to be excessive force, in my view. I mean, we've all seen the tape way too many times now. All right, number five, John Boehner, the former Speaker of the House, is out with a memoir, and it's got a lot of stuff in it. And I'm just going to read some of this because it's so fascinating. John Boehner was a country club Republican, mainstream Republican, ultimately couldn't control his caucus and resigned in frustration. Now he's got with a book. He said, um, you know, uh, in the 2012 midterms, and 2010 midterms, excuse me, you could be a total moron and get elected just by having an R next to your name. And we did pick up a fair number of those. Okay, so Boehner comes out swinging. Um, he was now in line to be uh, Speaker of the House. 87 newly elected members of the GOP. I felt I owned them a little tutorial on governing. I explained how to actually get things done. And a lot of them didn't listen. They were like incrementalism, compromise. That wasn't their thing. A lot of them wanted to blow up Washington. They, that's why they thought they were elected. I could tell they weren't paying attention. But they were just thinking how to fundraise off outrage or how they could get on Hannity that night. Ronald Reagan used to say something to the effect of, if I get 80 or 90% of what I want, that's a win. These guys wanted 100% every time, says Boehner. In fact, I don't think that would satisfy them because they really didn't want legislative victories. They wanted wedge issues and conspiracies and crusades. Wow. Uh, Boehner is pulling out the stops here against all of the freshmen and other lawmakers he had to deal with, who he didn't like, it's clear, who he felt wouldn't let him govern. Um... My talk of trying to get anything done, Boehner says, made me a sellout, a dupe of the Democrats, and a traitor. Some of them had me in their sights from day one. They saw me as as much of an enemy as the guy in the White House. Me, a guy who had come to the top of the leadership by exposing corruption and pushing conservative ideas. Now I was a liberal collaborator. That took some getting used to. What I had not anticipated also was how much this new crowd hated, and I mean hated, Barack Obama. By 2011, the right-wing propaganda nuts, remember, this is John Boehner talking, had managed to turn Obama into a toxic brand for conservatives. When I was first elected to Congress, we didn't have any propaganda organization for conservatives, except maybe a magazine or two like National Review. Um, There was no internet, there was no judge report, no Breitbart, no kooks on YouTube spreading dangerous nonsense like they did every day about Obama. He's a secret Muslim. He hates America. He's a communist. And, of course, the nutty, the truly nutty business about the birth certificate. People had really been blamewashed, says Boehner, to believing Barack Obama was some Manchurian candidate planning to betray America. Therefore, he says, he had trouble striking deals. Remember, there was going to be a grand compromise, grand bargain, it was called, between John Boehner as the Speaker of the House and Barack Obama as President of the United States. And Boehner couldn't get his caucus to go along. He talks, and he talks about... He talks about Fox. He talks about his dealings with Roger Ailes, and he thinks 
Um, he has a lot of negative things to say, and he thinks that he couldn't control his members because they thought if they could just get on Fox News, they could build their own power base, and they wouldn't have to deal with the institutionalists like John Boehner, who was trying legitimately to compromise with the Democrats to get something done. He recalls meeting uh, freshman Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, who was a big uh, hero on the right for a time, later ran for president, went nowhere in 2012. Uh, he told her she couldn't, in their first meeting, he told her she couldn't get on the committee she wanted to be on. Her response to me was calm, matter of fact. Well then, he quotes Michelle as saying, I'll just have to go talk to Sean Hannity and everybody at Fox and Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin, and everybody else on the radio and tell them that this is how John Boehner is treating the people who made it possible for the Republicans to take back the House. Says Boehner, I wasn't the one with the power, she was saying. I just thought I was. She had the power now. Uh, I think he's going to sell a lot of books, and probably a lot of Democrats will buy this book. And also, you, you can brace for the counterattack now from all the uh, conservatives who thought John Boehner was a squish, who thought he was too cozy with Obama, too cozy with the Democrats, and not yet not confrontational of. Ultimately, you know, Boehner went back to Ohio. He's drinking his Merlot. He's smoking his cigarettes. And now he's got the book out trying to make some money. Hey, hope you have a great weekend, folks. Once again, hope you will uh, get a chance to catch Media Buzz on Sunday. If you're uh, busy for Easter or for whatever other reason, we'll have the segments online Sunday and Monday. We'd appreciate if you'd subscribe to our little model, modest podcast. Apple iTunes is one way you can do that. We'll see you back here Monday with more Buzz Media. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.